Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. Now when he had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have noted that with Jesus' baptism, he fulfills all righteousness. That is, he officially, in his baptism, unites with his people. And as the mediator, he is going to do everything on behalf of his people, not for himself, but for his people. We saw in his temptation, as the last Adam, he gains the victory over the devil. And whereas the first Adam, when the first Adam was tempted, he failed. And as a result of his one act of disobedience, sin and misery came into the world. Now, as our spiritual champion, which Jesus is, he will keep the law perfectly, and he will, therefore, then die in our place as the sinless Lamb of God. So everything that Jesus does, he does for his people. Now, the next major event that Matthew mentions here is that when he returns from the wilderness, he begins to publicly begin his ministry of preaching, teaching, and healing. Thus, in that act, he demonstrates himself to be the Messiah. Now, you may be aware that the gospel accounts, uh, though they deal with similar events, they don't, uh, they don't always say exactly the same things. And there are some of the gospel writers that mention things that the other gospel writers do not. So, in one sense, when you combine all of them together, you get a fuller picture of the ministry of Christ. But even then, we're told that John says at the end of his book, the Apostle John, that there are things that Jesus did that, lo, if we were to write them all, then we would have enough books to write them in. So not everything that Jesus did is recorded in Scripture. But what God wanted us to know is recorded in Scripture. And so the Gospel writers, they're writing to the extent that they want us to understand the glorious ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both Matthew and Mark mention how John the Baptist, uh, when he was taken into custody, their gospel accounts say that uh, Jesus went into Galilee. Only John, the apostle, discusses why John the Baptist was arrested. Now, one thing we should note, by the time of Jesus' temptations and uh, the fact of uh, John's arrest, and being taken into custody, 
there is a period of time that has elapsed that you would not know it by just reading Matthew's account. The impression that you get here, is it not, that Jesus comes back from being tempted, and then he's, uh, after hearing that John has been taken into uh, custody, then he goes to Nazareth and then to Capernaum. Well, the scripture indicates there was maybe up to a year period of time of events that goes on that Matthew and Mark don't mention, but to get that idea, you've got to go to the book of John to find that out. And we see, for example, in John chapter 1, the Apostle John recounts how Jesus, uh, John the Baptist's affirmation that when he sees Jesus coming, he points out, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist mentions there that God the Father said to him, Whoever you see the Holy Spirit descending upon in the form of a dove and resting upon him, that person, John says, is the Son of God. Matthew and Mark mention uh, how you have a voice comes out of heaven and says, uh, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John doesn't mention that, but John says it another way. This is the Son of God. So the point here is, the Apostle John brings out something important uh, about <clears throat> Jesus. And he says that in the presence of some of John the Baptist's disciples. Which, upon saying that, is the basis for them leaving John the Baptist and following Jesus. Now, from John's Gospel account, we are told in his account that one of those disciples of John the Baptist was a man by the name of Andrew. And uh, the other person that's mentioned is never mentioned who that other one is. But these two, will follow Jesus. And why are they going to follow Jesus? Because John the Baptist says, Behold, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They heard John say, Whoever the Spirit descends on, that's the Son of God. So they understood that Jesus of Nazareth was the one that John the Baptist was referring to. And that's why they will leave. You don't get that in Matthew's account. That wasn't the purpose of Matthew's account. Now, as an aside here, when, when John the Baptist says, referring to Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When it says that Jesus took away the sins of the world, how are we to understand that? Does it mean every single person in the world has their sins taken away? Remember I've always said what do words mean? They mean what they mean in their context. How is the word world used here? Well, we know for a fact that Jesus doesn't take away the sins of every single human being in the world. If you use the word world to refer to every single person without exception. Jesus didn't take away any sin, I mean, any sins of those who are in hell, did he? 
If he had, they wouldn't be in hell, now would they? The only reason people are in hell is because they are unforgiven. Their sins aren't been taken away. So how do we understand that when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, we understand it the way Revelation 5.9 speaks. And let me read to you Revelation 5.9. It says, For thou hast, was slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. There you have it. How do we understand the world? People in all these differing nations, people in all these differing language groups, it is inclusive. There isn't any nationality that God has left out. His elect people are in all of these places. In other words, men from every tribe and tongue and nation, that is the world. And so it's accurate when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, another thing that's not mentioned in Matthew's account, but is evident, if you look at the other gospel uh, accounts, is that there was a time when John the Baptist's ministry paralleled Jesus' own ministry. We're told, especially in John's account, that Jesus' ministry was growing by leaps and bounds, attracting more and more people, and John the Baptist's ministry was, was diminishing. Turn with me to John chapter 3, and look at verses 24 through 36. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son is eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now the key to that whole, era, that whole section is John the Baptist's comment. He must increase, but I must decrease. After all, he was the one sent to prepare the way, was he not? He said, I'm not the Christ. I only baptize with water. He who comes after me, who's greater than me, will baptize you with the Spirit and with, uh, the, with fire. And here we see John saying, 
He gives the Spirit without measure. There's no limit to what the Son of God will do. And so we see here, men must receive Jesus' witness, John says. I'm of the earth, he's from heaven, and he speaks the word of God. And everybody who doesn't believe him, the wrath of God abides upon them. And then verse 36 there, that is John's final testimony to who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. You must believe in Jesus if you're going to make it into heaven. And so what we see here in Luke, Luke records why John was arrested by Herod. With that last testimony of John the Baptist, we're going to see John arrested, John the Baptist arrested for what he had to say to the king, King Herod. And what was, uh, what was it that John said to him? Well, he understood it was no secret that Herod had taken his brother's wife. His brother's wife is his own wife. And, and the scripture says that John the Baptist rebuked Herod for being a lawbreaker of that particular breaking of the law and other wicked things that Luke says that John pointed out in the king's life. Of course, what we see here, it was risky for John the Baptist to do that, wasn't it? To uh, publicly rebuke the king. You know, the role of the church and its preachers today are no different, and it's to be a prophetic voice to civil rulers. Herod was a civil ruler. John the Baptist was a prophet. But John the Baptist understood it was his duty to bring to bear the word of God to all men, even if it's Herod who has the power to hurt him. And so what we see here, that role, historically, faithful preachers have understood their role as to speak the word of God to civil rulers when necessary. For example, when George Whitfield made his first visit to America, and when he went to Boston in 1740, he was escorted around Boston and the surrounding districts by none other than the governor of Massachusetts by the name of Jonathan Belcher. And Jonathan Belcher was known for his godliness. He was a, a Christian man. And in his escorting of Whitfield, here's what the governor of Massachusetts, the governor of Massachusetts, a different age, 200 years later. <clears throat> governor Belcher said to Whitfield, he says, Sir, please don't spare rulers in your preaching, not even the chief of them, in the quote. And Whitfield didn't. <laughs> Several things about what we see here about John the Baptist in his proclamation boldly to, to Herod. First of all, well, about the ministry of John the Baptist. As we, we've already come to understand, he was the forerunner of the Christ. And as the forerunner, the herald who announces the coming of the king... Once the king comes, 
Is his service any more needed? Not really, if that was his primary purpose. The primary purpose of John the Baptist, the scripture says, he was a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. That was John's ministry. John was a faithful preacher who would not compromise the truth, even if it meant his own arrest, which it did. And it's evident from John the Baptist there in John three, uh, John 1, or John 3, that is, was John the Baptist out to get a name for himself? Was he out to have a mega ministry hoping he'd get a lot of people following him? No. He must increase. I must decrease, he says. Therefore, what we see, he wasn't out for self-glory. He was out for one purpose, to tell people about Jesus as the Messiah. In one sense, it was fitting for John the Baptist to be arrested and to be executed and taken out of the way so that there would be no division as as there were. And we already see it there. There was a, a division among the disciples of John the Baptist hearing about what was going on with Jesus' ministry. About when, when they said that Jesus was baptizing many John 4 says Jesus wasn't baptizing. His disciples were in his name. But the point here is, it already caused an inquiry and somewhat of a problem as people began to think, we're going to follow John the Baptist, we're going to follow Jesus. And so with John's removal, there's not going to be any question, is there? He's out of the picture. I think what we can learn from this is quite simply is that preachers are raised up by God to be his heralds. And when the Lord is through with us, that's the end of us. He calls us to glory. It's over. When he's through with this preacher, he calls them home. And the Father was through with John the Baptist. Of course, Jesus says there was no man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. He was, after all, the prophet who prepared the way of the Lord. Jesus says there was no prophet like John the Baptist. But John served his purpose in life. And so it's no tragedy that he was arrested and would lose his head. He was faithful up to the end as every preacher is to be. Now we're told, if you turn back to Matthew 4, we're told here that after John's arrest, that Jesus will leave for Galilee. Well, why leave? Why did he leave for Galilee? Well, several reasons. One, we're going to see because it was prophesied that he needed to leave because it's a great prophecy of Isaiah that needs to be fulfilled. But we know that John the Baptist stirred it up, and Jesus uh, will stir things, would stir things up, and he will leave so as to not give any reason for the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to find any reason to, uh, to arrest him and kill him before his time. <clears throat> 
Jesus always knew that he was coming to this world to die. But he says, my hour, there are times when he says, my hour has not yet come. It hasn't yet come. And we're going to see how Jesus kind of goes through a crowd that were trying to kill him. He just goes through the crowd and gets away. Because it's not his time. We're told in in John uh, 4, verse 1, that Jesus says, "When, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Jesus then, at that point, says, we need to go to Galilee. Now, Jesus is not a coward by any means, but he needs to understand, I, my time will be when I choose it to be, and it's not yet time. And so we're going to see that Jesus, because of the hostility that was arising, particularly towards John the Baptist, and would have arisen if Jesus had stayed around in Judea, Jesus says, no, we need to go to Galilee. And he goes to Galilee so that, as what we've said, every prophecy, which is predestination, is it not? Because that's what uh, prophecy is, predestination. Every word of God must be fulfilled. And Jesus will leave uh, Judea, and he will go to Nazareth, and then he will leave Nazareth, his hometown, and will go to and settle in Capernaum. And some of the gospel writers refer to Capernaum as the city of Christ. It's where Jesus took up residence. It was where he would use as a focal point for his ministry in Galilee. Why Galilee? Why Capernaum in the surrounding area? Well, we're told in the scriptures in that account that it was in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali there in Matthew 4.13. Why go there? Because Isaiah says he has to go there. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And you'll see the prophecy that's mentioned here that Jesus is fulfilling by going to Galilee. So turn to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1 through verse 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. Thou will be glad in thy presence, as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. 
more, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Not only will Jesus be born, but the zeal of the Lord of hosts not only will accomplish the birth of Christ and all those particulars that we've already looked at, but the zeal of the Lord of hosts will send Jesus, the mighty God, the one who owns all things, will send him to a land where the people had resided in great darkness. The places referred to here, uh, let's go ahead and turn back to Matthew 4. That is, uh, the re- verse 14 tells us why Jesus went there. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And then Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2 is what uh, Matthew recounts here. He had that prophecy by Isaiah about Zebulun and Naphtali, the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, those people who were in darkness. It was all about speaking of when Jesus would come. That's what the prophecy was all about. And so what we see here, we see that Zebulun, the land of Zebulun, was an area by the sea coast, and it was a haven of ships. You can look at Genesis and Deuteronomy and see all that it says about that. Concerning Naphtali, uh, both Genesis refers to it that Naphtali would give goodly words and should be satisfied with favor, according to Deuteronomy. Goodly words indeed, because who would bring them these good words but none other than the Messiah himself? would bring those good words to this area. I mentioned uh, in previous messages, what has God said? He told Jeremiah, he says, I am always watching over my word to perform it. When God gave that prophecy in, for example, in Genesis, concerning the land of Zebulun and that, 1,800 years will elapse. 1,800 years. Almost two millennia. God has not forgotten His Word. That's enough time for a lot of people to forget about a prophecy, right? Absolutely. But God says, I have not forgotten one part of my Word. And after 1,800 years, the Messiah will show up And he will go to this land that was prophesied. Now note uh, the great privilege that came to this area. It says these people sat in darkness. They sat in the shadow of death, it says. And what is that light? It says the people who were in darkness saw a great light. And who is that great light they saw? Jesus is said to be one of the scriptures, the light of the world. So the gospel is that light that dawns in the souls of those who are in darkness. And that gospel came to men in a saving sense, and that light comes to men in a saving sense, but also... The light comes to men in a non-saving sense, and that's important to understand. Not everybody who sees the light sees the light. Not everybody who hears 
actually hears. Remember how often Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You've got to have ears to hear. You've got to have eyes to see. And yet it says, the people saw a great light. As we shall uh, observe, Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus. And Capernaum will serve as his residence for his ministry in Galilee. And both Nazareth and Capernaum saw a great light. And they both have received from the mouth of Jesus himself the worst condemnation ever spoken to any city in the history of the world. From Jesus himself. And we'll look at that condemnation in a moment. My dear folk, understand this. To much, to whom much is given, much is expected. The greater the light shown to you, the greater the responsibility God expects. Now, where does this prophecy send Christ? Of Isaiah sends them to Galilee. By the way, Galilee in the time of Christ was, was viewed, and historically was viewed, with contempt. The people of that region were basically very poor, not only economically, but they were viewed as rude, crude people, lacking any kind of uh, social refinement, hardly at all. That was the prevalent attitude towards Galilee. And as uh, Paul will later say on about Cretans, he says, Cretans are said to be liars, which he says, which is for the most part true. The people of Galilee were not the most upstanding people in the area. And that is precisely where Jesus will go and focus his ministry. It's not by coincidence. It says these people were in darkness, great spiritual darkness, and they were sitting in the shadow of death. The physical and the spiritual afflictions of these people were great. Hence, the great physician comes to them to not only heal their bodies, but to heal their souls. Jesus went to the most unlikely place, to where people think, you don't want to go there. You just don't know what kind of people are there. But that's precisely where he needs to go. What did Jesus, after all, say? It's not the healthy that need a physician. It's the sick that need a physician. It's the spiritually sick that need to hear me. So I will go to those people who need it, in one sense, the most. Not that, of course, everybody needs it. When George Whitfield began his open-air preaching in England, he began in Bristol, England, and then would go to London. And the place where he went to preach, people all the time says, do not go there, George. You have chosen the worst neighborhoods of Bristol and London to go preach to. 
I mean, people don't go there. If you go there, you may not come back with the money that you went there with, or you may not come back alive. It was a dangerous place. It'd be like going to the suburbs today of, like, of Harlem in New York City or some suburb of Chicago or the worst district in Los Angeles. This is where he chooses to preach because that's where the need was the greatest. After all, what, what, what are we told here? Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew doesn't mention the exact same thing that Mark mentions. You know, Mark 1, 14 and 15 is the parallel passage here. Mark says Jesus came preaching, Repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus deliberately chooses that area because that's where the greatest need uh, in many respects was. Isaiah promised that that's where the Messiah would go. And it is for a reason that God goes to those that are so downtrodden to demonstrate that the gospel reaches all levels of social strata. It can reach down to the most corrupt people, even if they're Galileans. And so this message preached by Jesus, the message that will be preached by the apostles, the message that's going to be preached by every faithful preacher is simple. Repent of your sins and trust and believe in Jesus only for the forgiveness of your sins. Brother, that's the gospel message. That is the gospel message. That is the message that Jesus preached. It's the message of the apostles. It's the message that has been preached by every faithful minister down throughout church history. But it is a message that is not very popular today. It's not popular in America. It's not popular right now in the visible church. Where the emphasis a lot is on entertainment. It's not on preaching. I mean, if you're going to preach repentance and belief the way Jesus preached it, the way the apostles preached it, the way John the Baptist, well, just learn an example from John the Baptist. How did he preach it? He told the people, there is no hope for you unless you ask for forgiveness of your sins. They had to confess their sins. And once they confessed, then they were baptized as a sign of their confession. And, of course, John the Baptist told the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? He understood their hearts were darkened. He knew they had no real desire. They weren't confessing anything. Why? Because they were self-righteous. But he tells the self-righteous crowd what they've got to do. There's a... I guess you understand there's a lot of people that don't want to hear that kind of preaching today. They really don't. They really don't. People say, well, I just, you know, I mean, it's not like preachers are trying to deliberately make people feel bad. But some people say, well, I don't like to go there and hear that preach because he always makes me feel bad. 
look, if you're talking about the gospel, and you're talking about how you have to get right with God, you've got to understand what God says about you. The gospel, plain and simple, is this. That I can't save myself. I am depraved. There is no hope. I can't arouse myself to lay hold of him, uh, Isaiah says. There is no righteousness in me. There's nothing I can do. And yet the preacher tells me I've got to live a perfect life or I'm not going to make it because that's what the Scripture demands, a perfect life. But you've got to point out a person's sins and their need for Christ. But if you don't think you're a sinner, do you need a Savior? Of course not. But you've got to tell people and remind them of God's perspective on them. The gospel is you are lost and you need a Savior. And the, the preacher brings a message of a Savior who is a great light. Listen to that light. He says, you know, one fundamental truth that the Bible brings out is that in, in what men must learn to see in themselves is that they reside in spiritual darkness. Blinded by their sins, held captive by Satan and their sins to do the will of Satan. What did it say here? What Isaiah prophesied. The people were sitting in darkness. And they were sitting in, in the land in the shadow of the death. The nature of their life in many cases was very precarious. Some on the edge of physical death and to die without Jesus is horrific. The situation, the climate, the spiritual climate was poor. But the Bible always presents the gospel and the preaching of the gospel in that light. Turn with me to how the ministry of the Apostle Paul is summarized. Turn to Acts chapter 26. And look at uh, verses 16 through 18. Now Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa. And Paul is recounting his encounter with Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus. And we're told here what Jesus says to Saul of Tarsus. Beginning at verse 16, it says, But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This is what Jesus told Saul of Tarsus when he met him on the road to Damascus. When Saul of Tarsus is converted in that episode. Regenerated at that point. The whole ministry of Paul to the Gentiles was what? That through your preaching, you would open the eyes of the Gentiles. And that they would be delivered, how? Out of darkness into light. That's what salvation is. 
deliverance out of darkness into light. That's what it's all about. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, look at verses 13 and 14. I often use that in our assurance of forgiveness, if you'll notice. For he delivered us from the domain of what? Of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Delivered from the domain of darkness. The Galileans where Jesus was sent to were sitting in darkness and needed deliverance. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And look at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. You know what our job is? It's foremost the job of every preacher. But it is also your job as a Christian to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you personally out of darkness. The church is the royal priesthood. The church as a whole is the royal priesthood of God. And the church is to make known to those in darkness that glorious gospel, the excellencies of him that has called you. Notice you've got to be called out of darkness into his light. Now, the problem is this. You can call people out of darkness, but people may not come. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We've looked at this passage before. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. Now follow closely what is being said here. And 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Let's stop right there. You know what a veil is? Something over your face. You put a veil over your face, you can't see. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled because of those who are perishing in their sins. Now, he's going to describe those who have the veil. In whose case, the God of this world, notice what it says, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let's stop right there. We're not through. The reason people don't come to the light is because they are, their minds are still blinded by their sins. They are still blinded by Satan. You know, 2 Timothy says that everyone in bondage to sin is a slave to Satan to do his will. And who blinded their eyes? Satan. They can't see 
the light of the gospel. See, the gospel itself is called a light. For we, verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Brethren, salvation is a free gift, but salvation is a gift that God has to give you. God has to open your eyes, or you will still sit in darkness. You will still be a slave of the devil. If if God has it shown in your heart, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What can I say? If there was ever a time when you know that you weren't a, a, a believer and the Lord saved you, you saw the light. There was a time I knew I was in darkness. But then I knew there was a time when I saw the light. Even as being an agnostic. When the gospel came to me, the Lord was gracious and opened my eyes to see the glory of Jesus that I had never, ever seen before all my life. The few times I sat in church, the preacher preaching, it didn't faze me one bit, not one bit did it faze me because my eyes were still dark. You see, if you're going to be or become a Christian, you must have the truth revealed to you. And when that truth is revealed to you, you know what you're going to realize? You are a, I am a worthless sinner. Did not the publican and the Pharisee, did not the publican realize just how bad a sinner he was? He couldn't even look his face. He couldn't look up. He says, have mercy on me, us, the sinner. That was his attitude. See, when God opens your eyes, he opens your eyes to see the true condition of your spiritual condition of your soul. He lets you see just how bad you were. I thought of myself as a moral heathen. I I didn't do other things that other kids my age did, but I still understood I didn't know God. See, the gospel... When the light of the gospel comes, it brings conviction of sins. What was the message of of Jesus? Repent. Repent. Of what? Your sins. And then believe in the gospel. Believe that I am the answer to your problem. You have to be illumined to these truths. You have to be illumined to the fact you're a sinner. You have to be illumined to the fact that there is only one way to salvation. And it's not the bumper sticker coexist that will get you there. I don't know how many of those bumper stickers I see around. Coexist and all the different symbols of the world's religions. And the, the name of the religion of America is increasingly becoming more eclectic, more syncretistic. And people just don't want to hear that Jesus is the only way. 
But unbelievers have never liked that message. Did you know that's why Rome persecuted the Christians? Rome actually was tolerant of many different religions. All Rome asked of its religious folk was just give homage to Caesar as being divine and you go on worshiping the way you want. That was the attitude of Rome. And many people did that thing. But the Christians refused. And when the Christians refused, then the state says, we'll kill you. And they did. But that's the way it's always been. And the greatest accusation that the the unbelieving world has always given to Christians is this. You Christians are so narrow-minded that you think your Jesus is the only way. And I'm sad to say there are elements in professing Christianity that are even buckling under to that message today, which is grievous. I'm talking about major, quote, evangelical organizations that are crumbling to insist that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But, brethren, there is no other gospel that will save you. There is no other gospel that will deliver you out of darkness but that gospel. You know, the thing about it is, all the elect of God will hear and will see the light of the gospel. They will at some point. And they will at some point see the glory of Christ. But not everybody who sees, sees, and not everybody who hears, hears. Turn with me to John 3. And let's begin at verse 16. We'll begin at probably what is the most famous verse in the Bible. But what's not so famous is what follows it, but which is crucial. John 3.16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light is come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the, practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Why do men not come to the light according to Jesus? And Jesus was speaking here. Why do they not come? Because Jesus says what? They love the darkness and hate the light. That is the words of Jesus. That's why they don't come. So that any time the gospel is preached, men have a great moral obligation to do two things. Repent of their sins and believe 
in Jesus. Anytime that gospel is preached, that is the moral command of God. And the moment, if I may say the hour of decision, the, the crisis moment in their life has arrived. When that gospel is preached, God immediately says, repent and believe. And those who don't believe have committed the most heinous sin in the history of the world. I am not exaggerating when I say that. The most heinous sin in the history of the world. Both Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, and Capernaum, his residence from which he did his ministry, Jesus said, they will go down and perish. When he left Judea, we're told he first went to Nazareth, his hometown, and he went into the synagogue. Turn with me to that instance, and you're going to see what happened. Luke 4, verses 18 through 30. Jesus has come to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, we are told. He comes into the synagogue, and it was a custom that people could, uh, men could read a portion of the Word of God. They handed him, of all things, the scroll to Isaiah. That's no coincidence. And Jesus will read out of Isaiah, and he will read, beginning at verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are downtrodden. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant. Sat down. All the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled. In your hearing. What did you say, Jesus? Hold on. Time out. What did you say, Jesus? Today, this scripture is fulfilled by you reading it? Is that what you just told us? And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, we know this boy. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Seraphath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. I'm going to stop right there, but I won't mention the next three verses. So Jesus says, a prophet's not even welcome in his hometown. You're not even receiving me. And the reason you're receiving me is just like 
the fact of what happened in Elijah's time. Verse 28, And all the synagogue was filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up, cast him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They were carrying him out to lead him, to throw him off the cliff, because he had insulted them. And it says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. I think there's more to it than just, kind of just, it wasn't his time. He was not going to die by being thrown off a cliff. And, but he had told them, if I'd even done the things that Capernaum done to you, you would have believed, but you, you, you haven't believed. And then turn to see his condemnation of Capernaum, turn to Matthew 11. Now, I know I'm going to jump ahead here, but turn to Matthew 11 and look at verses 23 and 24. Here's what Jesus says. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Even the Sodomites of Sodom would have repented if I had come and done the miracles that I have done before you. You have seen a great light. You have heard the Messiah himself. And yet you don't believe. The Sodomites would have believed if I had come to them. They are in hell, but you will be whipped with greater lashes because your sin is the greatest of all the sins of all of mankind. I, the Messiah, have come to you, and you refuse to repent and believe. And therefore, you will perish. Nazareth forsook Jesus. Capernaum forsook Jesus and paid a great price. Ezekiel 18.32 says, here's God's attitude. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. That is what Ezekiel said. God takes no pleasure in the death of unbelievers. Now, does God have to call you? Yes. He has to call you sovereignly. But there is a mystery here that I've told you numerous times. God has to sovereignly give you repentance and faith. But at the same time that he does that, he has commanded you to repent and believe and and believe in Jesus. That is his command. And if you don't do it, whose fault is it? What did John the Baptist say? The wrath of God abides upon all who refuse to believe in Jesus. If I end up going to hell as an unbeliever, it's no one's fault but my own for refusing to believe. Pastor Moorcraft at times has said about, what if I'm not one of the elect of God, you know? What if I'm not one of the elect? Because only the elect can believe. And they throw up this theological, you know, supposed uh, 
roadblock here. And I've always liked what he said. He says, well, let's see. Are you one of the elect? Can you muster up enough belief in Jesus to believe he's the only Savior of sinners? Can you do that? If you can, then you're one of the elect. So try to believe in Jesus. I've had people say, well, I don't know. I had a man in my first pastorate say that. He was wondering about this. And I told him, he says, and that was the exact question he asked. How do I know if I'm elect? I said, we'll settle it today. I've looked across the table. I said, let's settle it right now. Believe in Jesus only for your salvation. Well, I don't know. I said, did you not just hear what I just told you? Let's settle it right now. If you're going to be elect. Believe in Jesus. After an hour, he still would not believe. Did he hear a great, did he see a great light? Yes. Did he, and did he hear a great light? Yes, because he heard the gospel message. But he refused to believe. Jesus went to the great downtrodden of the world. He went to Galilee, the rude and the crude, and he preached. And he said, I am the light of the world. All you have to do is repent and believe, and you'll be saved. Well, that's the message. That is the gospel. And that is the gospel we have to preach. That's the kind of gospel that needs to be raised up in our day. Will it be offensive? Of course it will be offensive to those who are still in darkness. But it is the only way. It is the only hope. And no preacher is worth the name preacher who doesn't tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. Let us pray.